The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Hello, this is The Exchange from Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Anna Shemansky, recording from sunny Brooklyn. I'm really excited for today's show. We're going to be diving into the fascinating and somewhat wonky world of ETFs, or exchange-traded funds. So I'm thrilled to have as my guest Salim Ramji, Global Head of ETFs and Index Investments at BlackRock. Salim, thanks so much for coming on. Absolutely. I'm glad to be here. Great. So as I'm sure many know, BlackRock is the world's largest um, asset manager and has really become synonymous with passive products and especially ETFs. So this should be a really great discussion. You know, maybe just to start, you know, I imagine a lot of our listeners have heard of ETFs, have a basic understanding of how they work, may own some of them, but, you know, I still sometimes think people get confused about some of the details. So maybe to start, let's just go, you know, what are ETFs? What makes them unique and why have they become so popular in the last decade? Yeah, and it's, it, it really started, um, uh, I'm a little bit uh, bizarrely proud of the lineage of the ETF. Uh, it, it, it just turned 30 years old this year. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm well over 30 years old, but it was invented in Canada, uh, which is where I grew up, Anna. Oh. And, uh, and it was in 1990 that the first ETF was launched on the Toronto Stock Exchange. And the, the core of the idea um, was really quite simple. And it was really just to get um, investors access uh, to a very simple portfolio of diversified stocks. Uh, in, in a way, you could almost think about it as a, it's like a mutual fund, um, which has been around for almost 100 years. It's like a mutual fund that trades on an exchange. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, it just becomes much more available to a much broader part of the population. Um, everyone from an individual investor to a, a sophisticated institution, but it does it through the mechanism of trading on exchange and, and having a real-time price and just being super transparent and super accessible to, uh, uh, to investors. And, and I think, you know, I, I don't imagine that in 1990 when kind of the first ETF was launched and then it, 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 um, it quickly moved to the United States kind of within a year mm-hmm. uh, and started to really take hold, um, particularly over the past 10 years, as you'd said, uh, that people had in their mind that this would be a um, $6 trillion and growing part right. of the asset management business. But if I look at what, um, you know, there are multiple things that, that we can talk about that have, have have driven that extraordinary growth story, but at the kernel of it, I think is that investors wanted something simple, they wanted something transparent, and they wanted something that they could access. And in in most cases, you can also access it at a pretty inexpensive price. Uh, and that's a pretty good business model. And um, it's it you know it continues to grow for us and 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 across the industry. But I think at the core of it is, you know, just some essential components like those. And, you know, you mentioned this in terms of the different investors that use ETFs, because I think when people think of ETFs, they have a tendency to almost only think of retail investors. These obviously are used by institutional investors as well. So I'm just kind of curious, 
how do different investors use the product differently? You know, it's, and it's one of the things that's really, I think, changed, particularly over the past 10 years, because, you know, if you look at uh, iShares, which has been around for uh, about 20 of the 30 years of the ETF, we got our mm -hmm. start around the year 2000, um, that the, the first set of investors were very much retail investors, as you, as you talked about, and, and the early um, uses of things like iShares were to enable individuals to get access to markets outside the United States. Mm -hmm. And so uh, a lot of our roots were really in um, being able to, if someone wanted access to um, uh, emerging markets or someone wanted access right. to Korea, or someone wanted access to a, to a sector in a transparent, inexpensive way, that's what we did. Um, it, it, I, I think one of the things that's really changed, particularly in the past five years, and I'd even say even just this past year, is um, you know this whole debate shifted. It, it was as as indexation and as ETFs took off really in the early part of um, um, you know the 2000 to 2010 2015 era. It was really this sort of you know epic battle between active versus index. Mm -hmm. And uh, you, you know I, I remember even in, in my office there's a a ad from the 1970s. Uh, that I cut out and kept, and it was from a particular active manager that had said that indexing is un-American <laughs> because no American would want just average. <laughs> right, right. Okay? So that was the 1979 narrative, which kind of kept going until around the year 2010. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things, um, uh, and I think BlackRock really catalyzed some of this with the acquisition of BGI mm -hmm. uh, at the end of 2009 and into 2010, which was that these aren't opposing forces, right. um, that it really is about active and index and really about how you achieve the best outcomes for a client within their portfolio. And, and I would say much of the past decade has really been about, you know, where do you want index exposure that you can get through an ETF? Where do you want um, active management that can deliver a return which is above and beyond that? And that's really defined the past 10 years. But what's, what I think is most interesting and the most, um, uh, 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 the most interesting part is really what's been going on for the past couple of years, mm -hmm. uh, which is that one of our biggest segments of growth within iShares is other active managers. Interesting. And so it really takes this whole you know, uh, uh, narrative from the 70s and the 80s of mm -hmm. like these are opposing forces to actually ETFs now um, are, are really being used as a instrument to, um, uh, to help reduce prices, help um, provide sources of liquidity, um, help um, uh, bring down transaction costs, and, and, and help investors, even very sophisticated institutional investors like other asset managers, um, discover and find uh, the best prices in a given market. Um, just because of the way in which they trade on exchange is is really quite unusual and really quite innovative for particular markets, including the bond market, uh, which has never really, you know, been terribly transparent right. or terribly kind of low cost, uh, right. <laughs> uh, kind of certainly relative to the equity market. Yeah, and maybe that's actually a good place to jump off from because I, mean, I feel like before this last crisis, when people raised concerns about ETFs 
fixed income ETFs tended to be what they focused on. The kind of idea yeah. that you had this underlying, often illiquid asset, especially if we're talking about corporate debt. And then on top of that, you had this very freely you know, traded share. And the concern was obviously that in a crisis, maybe somehow that mechanism gets broken, that creates some type of sell-off. And, and so I, I'm really curious to hear what exactly happened? Like, what did BlackRock see happen in the in yeah. this you know most recent crisis? Look, you know, I, I think above and beyond all of the very clear humanitarian and societal issues that the the past um, you know February, March, April, and even till today, um, uh, that you know our clients, our teams, our kind of societies are facing. I, I think. In, in one part of the market, the bond market, saw some pretty extraordinary stresses in the months of March and mm -hmm. April. And, and, and ETFs are right in the middle of it. And I think that, you know, when you look at kind of those market stresses, um, uh, they were certainly the most significant stresses that we've seen within iShares in our history. You know, I debate with my colleagues, is it, you know, in the past 10 years or is it in the past kind of like, you know, since inception? But certainly significant. And it wasn't just the market volatility, which we saw during kind of the February, March, and April period. It was also that large parts of the bond market had really dried up in, in uh, 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 and, and liquidity had really mm -hmm. evaporated in certain parts of the bond market. It was that um, price discovery was really difficult um, because of the, the liquidity um, uh, drying up. And it was also, at least in the United States, um, uh, U.S. Uh, markets went through four market-wide circuit breakers, uh, which had caused issues to the system right. back in 2015. Um, some fixes were put in place by exchanges, and um, you know these hadn't happened before under these new rules, and and four happened in the course of just um, uh, just over a week uh, during March. Mm -hmm. And so we had all that happen while everyone. Most people at BlackRock are working from home. Most of our partners are working mm -hmm. from home. Uh, and and the, the thing that was um, very positive from an investment point of view is that it really proved the skeptics wrong. Um, you know, we'd been saying this, um, that if these things happen, don't worry, these other pieces are in place. Mm -hmm. um, but um, uh, uh, some people, some of our clients trusted it, trusted us with that. Some of our clients said, I trust you, but I want to see uh, this happen in real action before um, uh, it was trust and verify. And this was a really important verification moment, I think, for iShares and for ETFs in general. Because what happened is that as um, volatility increased in markets, more people turned to our ETFs. Uh, that as price discovery was super opaque in the bond market, mm -hmm. um, our ETFs became vehicles in which um, prices were discovered. And you started to just see some extraordinary numbers, right? I mean, from these, you know, humble beginnings when it first started to trade on exchange, you mm -hmm. know, we had certain flagship ETFs that were being traded 168,000 times in a given day. Wow where their underlying bonds, even the most liquid, the five most liquid bonds were maybe trading 25 times. And so the, yeah. the power of that price discovery was really significant because large parts of the market were using the ETF as the reference point for where the bond market was trading. And yeah. 
and and so that's just that was that was um, good to see because it, it, it said that the things that we thought ought to happen did happen, even under extreme stress. And I think that what's happened is that even some of our clients who were loyal clients for equity ETFs, but perhaps skeptics in terms of bond ETFs, had really seen that as a really important proof point. And, and that's where we're seeing a lot of our more recent growth, uh, particularly over the past few months come from, is, is some of those skeptics now coming off the sidelines saying, yeah, you, you did what you said you would do. Maybe I kind of want to also dive in a little bit there because I feel like a lot of people, even if they somewhat understand ETFs, don't quite understand how that mechanism works, kind of like how the right. creation redemption mechanism works and how the arbitrage works that kind of keeps this product functioning. So this might be right. a little, little in the weeds, but I, I'd love for you to just kind of walk us through that. Yeah. And it's, it's a, yeah, it's worth, uh, let, let me try and describe it simply, which is that, you know, underlying, when you own an ETF, what you really own is a, a, a basket of underlying securities. So if you own our, um, if you own our um, S&P 500 ETF, um, which goes by the ticker IVV, what you own is shares of the 500 constituent companies that make that up, obviously pro rata based on how many shares of IVV you own. Mm -hmm. um, and in, in, in the bond ETFs, um, what you'll own is a representative sample of uh, the benchmark that those bonds are um, looking to track. And so what happens is that if you're, for, for most cases, uh, if let's say you're, you want to buy um, uh, AGG, AG, our, our uh, uh, aggregate bond ETF, mm -hmm. um, you'll buy it on what's called the secondary market. So um, it might be person A sells it to you and actually nothing happens to the bond market. It's just they own the ETF and now you own the ETF, right? And, and for, for uh, in, in normal times, like I'd say in non-stress times, you know, eight or nine out of every 10 transactions are just like that. They're happening in the secondary market. Uh, that, that one person is just selling it to another person and there's no, there's no underlying no one's selling the bonds. No one's buying the bonds. It's just kind of, it's just trading between a buyer and a seller. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's an alleviator of the, of, of, of stresses in the market because there's no buying and selling that might happen in the way that it might happen, for example, in a mutual fund. Um, when, uh, when there aren't enough shares uh, in the ETF, uh, what'll happen is that there'll be a create. And so all a create is, is that a, a firm called an authorized participant, and these are typically large kind of broker-dealer firms, mm -hmm. um, what they'll do is that they'll um, go into the open market, buy a basket of the securities, uh, will publish a list of, of kind of what's acceptable to put into the ETF to, to make up the S&P 500 or make up the aggregate bond index, mm -hmm. um, and then they'll wrap it into an ETF uh, and then make that available to you. And, and so then that's kind of sourcing um, uh, bonds from the open market and wrapping it into an ETF. And then other participants in the market are always kind of making sure that, um, that the ETFs trade within the band of, uh, of appropriate value. And, and uh, if the ETFs get too rich or the ETFs get too cheap relative to the underlying value, it creates an arbitrage opportunity 
such that they can take the ETF, if you will, break it open and just take the securities, if mm -hmm. that's advantageous, or buy securities and put them into an ETF, if that's advantageous. And so they typically trade within, you know, pretty normal bounds of like a few basis points right. um, or within kind of, you know, 10-ish basis points, depending on the time and the, and, and the circumstances. So then even, you know, in a moment where, because obviously, as you know, we saw in March, you know, you had a moment where people didn't want to hold anything other than cash, but kind of, as you're saying, this, this mechanism still held up, like you still have yeah. these intermediaries willing to, and it kind Absolutely. of, and, it, and, and is it essentially the arbitrage that like incentivizes them to kind of continue to participate? Yeah, it's the arbitrage that incents them to do it, um, certainly. Um, and in some cases where you saw um, those bounds broaden a little bit, what was actually um, happening, uh, and in some cases, those bounds that, that might have been 10 basis points, maybe mm -hmm. moved to 100 basis points, uh, and on a few days kind of moved kind of to a couple hundred basis points. And, and what was really happening there was, um, uh, was that the ETF was becoming the instrument through which bond market price discovery was happening. Because if I take that example uh, that I gave you before, mm -hmm. which was uh, March 23rd, uh, I think it was March 23rd, um, uh, that it was our high yield fund, mm -hmm. um, HYG, and that traded 168,000 times that day. Yeah. Um, whereas the underlying bonds, even the most liquid, as I said, were trading 25 times, but right. most of the bonds were not trading at all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And, and what was really happening was that, that that very liquid ETF was becoming the mechanism by which all investors, could be very sophisticated investors, could be individual investors, were really, um, in most cases it was more sophisticated investors, were really using that as a lens through which where are actionable markets in high yield. And, and so what might've looked like a discount to the net asset value, really was an indication of where the bond market was actually trading um, in that moment of time. And I mm -hmm. think when you look at it just with that lag and when you see the thing that's trading 168,000 times is probably more than <laughs> it isn't trading. One might uh, think, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's, it's sort of like, you know, the analogy that, um, uh, that I've used is sometimes like, uh, you know, you get an appraisal for your house uh, before you sell it. And, and the appraisal is pretty good and it looks at comparables and it, it, it tries to kind of give the best, fairest value of it. Mm -hmm. And then there's the price at which you can sell your house. And, uh, and they're sometimes a little bit different, uh, right. uh, particularly in moments of like, you know, uh, duress or stress in mm -hmm. the housing market. Uh, they can be quite different. Right. And, and I think what was happening during those periods in March and, and, and even saw it in April mm -hmm. uh, the, in the reverse effect was that um, uh, not all ETFs, but, but some of our most liquid, most significant bond ETFs really became the vehicle through which price discovery was happening in the bond market. Um, and so you saw those, um, those um, discounts and premiums widen for periods of time. But what was really happening there is that it was giving investors, and it, you could be an individual investor buying that ticker, like mm -hmm. on a you know through a self-directed platform, or you could be a a asset manager that's looking to look at that exposure. But it gave all investors kind of um, equivalent access to a vehicle of price discovery, and we and we think that's a good thing. Oh, definitely. And now I'm kind of curious, you know, you know, thinking moving forward, 
do you think that you know what we saw with these bond ETFs and just the growth of bond ETFs in general, if that will also then kind of affect the bond pricing market itself? Because obviously, you know, the bond market, the way pricing works for the most part is still pretty archaic. And yeah. so, so I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on that. I think it's a look. It's a one of the things that I found um, surprising over the years is uh, is just the archaic nature, as you said, of the bond market itself. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, that the 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 lack of transparency, the way in which kind of fees are made, um, uh, and uh, and even just the um, the use of um, uh, a more electronic means to uh, access markets mm -hmm. is far behind what uh, equities, for example, are. Right. And, and we really um, we really look at uh, ETFs within bonds as almost a technology that's driving the modernization of the bond market itself. And, and I don't mean that to sound like overly grandiose, <laughs> uh, you know, like everything's a technology, everyone wants to be a technology. Right, right, right. But when you look at how electronic trading is happening in the bond market. Or when you look at a bond market where everything was historically negotiated between two parties, mm -hmm. and now the ETF is putting it on exchange and making it transparent. And when you look at the benefits of providing this accessibility, not just to insiders, but to the whole marketplace, from individual investors to the most sophisticated through a, a common vehicle, all of those have technology-like characteristics. And, and when we talk to um, the range of providers who sometimes run these kind of electronic trading networks, sometimes mm -hmm. they're authorized participants, sometimes they're other active managers, right? So kind of these um, participants in the, in the bond ETF ecosystem. Yep. They're actually like, if you get into the active index debate or active and index debate, they're sort of looking at you like you're, <laughs> like you're, you're speaking a different language, um, because they're just. This is just an instrument. It's just a technology. Right. It's just making my process cheaper, or right. it's just making uh, me enable to scale my business better. And and they're talking about it like a technology. So I, I think I use that term not out of some, you know, uh, grandiose statement right. that we came up with within BlackRock. I use that term because that's how a a really important segment of our client base. Uh, particularly some of the asset managers, the the broker dealers, the um, um, large institutional investors mm -hmm. really think about uh, a bond ETF, which is just it's just an instrument to access markets that they want to access better. And that actually makes me think of you know another issue we saw with exchange traded products, kind of in general over um, throughout and kind of after this crisis. I know that BlackRock and a number of other kind of participants in this space have recently kind of come out saying that we need a little bit more clarification about the different categories of kind of exchange-traded funds versus exchange-traded products versus, you know, kind of all of these right. different things. Because, you know, obviously we did see this wasn't a BlackRock product, but there was a exchange-traded product that was linked to oil futures, which, you know, didn't function exactly as it was supposed to. And while a very sophisticated investor might have kind of understood how kind of roll yield worked, that may not have been something that just a retail investor would understand. Right. So I, I'd, I'd like to hear you speak about what you think needs to be done so that there's better clarification between these different types of products. Yeah, and look, we, we, we just look at it. The, the ETF industry 
or the ETP industry rather, um, has grown so significantly and in such a multifaceted way over the past, not just over the past 30 years, because I think it's really over the past 10 years that this has really taken off yeah. in, a, in an even much more significant way. Um, and, you know, it, within the United States alone, there, there are 2,400 kind of different varieties of, of, of ETP, exchange-traded products. And, and I think the the thought process behind the, the naming convention, which we, together with a number of our coalition partners, were really um, uh, uh, unified in our thinking behind, is just make it clear to people what they're buying. And it's almost like food labeling. Um, right. Investors can make the choice about what they want to buy. Um, uh, but, but we should be very clear as to kind of what's inside. And, and I think the, the, you know, for, for the vast majority of um, uh, ETFs out there, they share characteristics around, um, th that actually have commonality going back 20 or 30 years, right? They're, mm -hmm. they're transparent, investable ways in which to access markets, for example. Uh, and, and when you look under the proposed uh, uh, naming conventions, you know, the 2,400 ETP products that exist in the United States, like close to 80%, I think 77% of them kind of um, fit that description. Um, but some of them um, actually have characteristics which are much more like structured products. Right. And so in those cases, you could lose uh, uh, a lot of uh, money or make a lot of money uh, with some relatively smaller moves in the marketplace. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, if an investor understands that, and if an investor wants to buy that, great, they should be able to buy that. Um, but we think that those have different characteristics than the well-diversified, transparent, investable offerings mm -hmm. that we think are more categorized as, as ETFs. And, and look, even under our, you know, the, the naming conventions that, um, uh, uh, that this coalition proposed, uh, there also are these these classifications of exchange traded commodities, uh, and we would have to reclassify a, a few of our own ETFs mm -hmm. as ETPs under our own proposal. You know things like our gold fund, uh, as would a number of our other um, coalition partners, and and so it's uh, it's really just giving transparency and clarity to investors about um, that there are differences. And as long as they understand those differences and they can kind of get into it and, and you know, they may be buying futures or they may be, may be buying things that can like a small movement in markets can make them go up by a lot or make them go down by a lot. Mm -hmm. Great. But, but I think it's just recognizing that the, the, the marketplace has just become much more multifaceted um, over the past, um, over the past uh, uh, several years. And, and I think the naming conventions just have to catch up with that to particularly help individual investors um, kind of understand what they're, you know, what's inside. Right. And, you know, and, and I think also, you know, as, as, as ETFs and ETPs and all of these products grow, I mean, I think we're also going to see different variations on them. And, and one part of ETFs that I imagine will probably become, you know, even more popular are those related to sustainable investment or kind of yeah. ES, ESG characteristics. So, I'm curious, where are we in terms of ESG ETFs and, and how, where do you think we might go in the next, you know, five to 10 years? 
Yeah, uh, the answer is further and along than we thought. And, and, and I'll have to admit, Anna, to you that, you know, a couple of years ago, I was a skeptic uh, <laughs> as to whether um, sustainability or even sustainable ETFs uh, would really have a important place in, um, in investment management beyond the niche that they occupied. They, they'd mm -hmm. long occupied a niche in the marketplace for often values-based investors Right. that were catered to by a particular niche of um, kind of asset managers. Uh, and, and I just thought that, that that was kind of the way things would be. Um, I, I think that what has surprised us uh, uh, to the upside are really two things. Uh, the first one, you know, we've written about, and um, uh, uh, Larry Fink, our CEO, has written about uh, uh, earlier this year, that uh, uh, certain sustainability risks, like climate risk, are investment risks. Mm -hmm. um, and this isn't, you know, it, it may be about values, but what it's really about is value. Right. And, and if you're a investor, particularly a long-term investor, you need to think about sustainability risks, just as you think about credit risks and liquidity risks and other market-oriented risks. Um, and, and especially for a firm like BlackRock, because of our significant indexing um, business, uh, we are by definition the long-term investor. Um, mm -hmm. Because if something is in the S&P 500 or something is in uh, kind of a, a MSCI index, like we have to hold that stock. <laughs> like it's not a, <laughs> right. not a, like, you know, that's yeah, our sure, obligation yeah. <laughs> um, kind of around it. So we're, we're the ultimate long-term holder. And for the clients who we represent, by definition, they are also kind of long-term holders that, that we need to think about sustainability risks just as we think about um, any of these other risks. And, and I think that was a real um, change in our own thinking, but for a firm that was built on the foundation of good risk management, thinking about sustainability risk just as we think about others was a real important change in our investment thinking. And I think yeah. the second thing, which is really ETF specific, is, you know, there were a lot of dynamics in the sustainable investment market that were very much like a niche or cottage industry. And I think that one of the really exciting things about what we've been able to do in the past couple of years in ETFs is we've been able to bring some of the characteristics that people were bringing to other parts of the asset management industry 30 years ago or 20 years ago, but to sustainability. So we um, are now offering incredible choice. Uh, you know, we, we, a couple of years ago, we had 20 ETF offerings. Now we have over 100 ETF and index fund offerings. Um, we're able to provide kind of transparency into exactly what's um, inside. Um, and we're able to provide, you know, we think really good value through much lower prices. And what we expect is that we're going to be um, T tapping into really latent demand amongst clients all over the world, here in the United States, in Europe, in Japan, um, uh, all over the world for sustainable index investing, which we think is gonna grow from a market that was relatively small um, uh, in macro terms, uh, you know, a couple hundred billion dollars to something which is going to be well over a trillion dollars um, uh, over the next, uh, uh, before the decade is out. And for us, that's, that's obviously exciting from a growth point of view. 
but it's also exciting because what we're able to do is we're able to provide more accessibility, more choice, better prices, and things that are really tapping into kind of this desire of clients, but they just hadn't been able to access it uh, in the right way. And I think it almost takes us back to the roots of ETFs. If you go back to the, you know, the creation story from the, the mm -hmm. 90s, but just in a totally different segment of the market and armed with kind of our, you know, um, uh, long-term thinking and the risk management thinking um, that comes um, that comes with BlackRock. And I'm kind of curious in terms of maybe the, the transparency element there, because I know that that is one thing you sometimes hear with kind of ESG investing in general, that like everybody has a different understanding of what ESG means. Yeah. And, and so, you know, kind of what, what is BlackRock doing? Like, what are your products doing to kind of make it very clear to investors, you know, what, what the ESG metric means? Yeah, it's a, a and, and we do a, a couple of things, which I think are unusual. Um, I, I'm not aware of any other asset manager that does this, but, but if you look on kind of our website on iShares.com, uh, we provide complete transparency for all of our ETFs into what the ESG scores are. Mm -hmm. And we provide complete transparency into what the underlying holdings are. Um, so you can be able to see and assess for yourself kind of those scores and those risks across kind of our entire lineup. I think that's unusual and, and mm -hmm. certainly it's a decision that we you know, did with a lot of investment, a lot of thinking behind. But, but I think the other thing which um, the, the ETF or the index wrapper affords us is the ability to provide breadth of choice because you know, every client is coming at this from a different starting point. You know, we'll have some clients that will invest in a portfolio with market cap weighted indices um, and, and they might want to add ESG aspects to their portfolios, but they'll say, look, you know, I, I still need it to track the index pretty closely, mm -hmm. but if you can just improve the ESG scores, that would be great. You will have other clients that will say, actually, I just want you to screen out these four industries right. that don't fit with my investment thinking or my values. That's our screened range. The first one is our ESG range, uh, aware range. Or you could have another client that says, look, I really believe that sustainability is really good long-term investing. So I just want you to select the best ESG leaders uh, and put that into a, an ETF um, uh, uh, around it. And then you'll have others which are even, you know, behind a particular ESG theme like climate change or, or, or governance or the like. And so, you know, we, we've developed a, a taxonomy which has sort of four or five different segments of types of products um, mm -hmm. that that we think meet different client starting points in terms of how they want to transition towards an ESG aware or an ESG portfolio. And again, one of the efficiencies of the ESG wrapper is that we're able to do that really rapidly and really efficiently across the lineup. So, you know, the, the, the hundred or so products that I told you about, um, which is the largest of any firm, uh, two years ago, we only had 20. And, and the ability to, um, to expand at that rate, uh, we can scale it much more quickly uh, than even our, our, um, uh, you know, our other active managers would be able to do, or mm -hmm. even other index managers would be able to do that don't have our scale and our capability to be able to launch that rapidly. 
And it's interesting too, because it kind of speaks to this idea of, you know, there being a, you know, not a really clear distinction between active and passive. You know, as you're kind of talking about these, you know, these products that in, to a certain extent are passive products, but however, you know, di different decisions are being made, you know, it, so they it's- They take active risk. <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. So yeah. it's, so it's, you know, kind of an interesting thing to think of moving forward as this debate between active and passive that, you know, these kind of, they, they fill in that gap between. There's, there's no firm line. Yeah, I think, I think those definitions are blurring because look, you know, I, I think, I don't think it's going to happen next year, but mm -hmm. I think five, 10 years from now, people are going to look back at active and passive as a 20th century construct. Right. Um, that, uh, and, it, and, and we think it's a dated construct because first, what you're having is that you're having more ETFs, for example, taking active risk, right? Our sustainable ETFs um, do take things that are different than a market cap weighted mm -hmm. index, um, uh, that our factor ETFs, for example, um, uh, uh, deliberately take tilts that are different from right. traditional market cap weighted indices. And I think underlying that you have um, two things going on. One is that ETFs in particular are just starting to automate and make more transparent things that five, 10, 15 years ago might've been done through quote, active management. Uh, and we think that right. benefits investors because we can provide all the benefits that, um, that ETFs have been providing for decades, accessibility, transparency, and, and, and good value. Um, but we also think um, that something else is happening, which is that, you know, for many segments of our clients, and it's a growing segment, what, what they actually care about is not the active or the index or the ETF or the mutual fund. They're like, what's my portfolio doing? Right. <laughs> and, uh, and is it doing what you said it would, whether that's an income goal or a, a, a return goal? Mm -hmm. Am I taking the right amount of risk that's appropriate for me? And am I paying the right amount for it? Yeah. And 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 ultimately, how how a firm builds that, and they can build it very transparently, very cheaply. They can build it with a blend of both. They can build it with, um, you know, public markets and private markets. That's really where the client piece is. And 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 as a firm, um, you know, we've really made a big, um, um not just a push, really just a belief statement. I think, I think it all started with the acquisition of, um, of, of uh, uh, BGI and iShares 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. It's really about the whole portfolio because that's what the client cares the most about. Right. And, and all of these different components, active index, ETS, mutual funds, those are all component parts of how to build a great portfolio. And that's really where we ought to put a lot of our energy and a lot of focus. Uh, and obviously we think ETFs have an important role to play in a portfolio. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, but it's really, if we're thinking from a client lens, it's really the portfolio that, that matters much, much more than the, than the underlying product. Well, I think that is probably a, a great place to, to end. Um, Celine, thanks again. This was a great discussion. Absolutely. Thanks, Anna. Thanks for listening to The Exchange. This podcast was produced by Freddie Joyner. Be sure to check out breakingviews.com and subscribe to our various audio products, including The Views Room, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your podcast fix. Thanks again for listening.